right, I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode of Forward Thinking Founders. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that we are officially starting an email list as we have some big plans for the podcast and we'll be telling people on the email list first and probably only the people on the email list. So feel free to sign up and get on the email list at f20r.com. That's F as in Frank, 20R as in red.com. And I'll see you over there. All right, how is it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders, where we're talking to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Sahil Koja, who is the creator of Students Who Design. Welcome to the show. How is it going? Thank you for having me. It's going really well. How's your day? My day is going great. I had a coffee a couple of hours ago, and I'm still feeling pretty caffeinated, as you can wow. tell, so it's all good. <laughs> I, I do some of that. <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely. I, I wouldn't say it's the best thing to rely on coffee for caffeination or for energy, but you can only win so many battles, you know? No, that's a fair, fair point, yeah. All right, well, let's get into what you're working on. What is Students Who Design? Yeah. Students Who Design is an online product design school, so we help you go from zero, I know nothing, to your first product design job. Uh, and the entire program is free until you're hired. Okay, so let's, let's go start with how someone would, uh, how, was, how does someone go from no experience to boom, you have a job? What happens in this? Is it in person? Is it online? What, yeah. How are there courses? Is it already pre-recorded? Can you go into some of the details into how it works yeah. for a potential student? Sure. So a student would sign up usually via our website. And what they would do is actually go through a three-week program. And so a three-week program is entirely free. It's our way of giving back to the community. That's how Students Who Design started. It's a free online resource. We have podcasts, blogs, uh, sorry, blog posts, not blogs. And uh, you go through this three-week program, and that's a way for you to understand, you know, is this a good fit? Do I like the instructors? Am I okay doing a remote online program? Um, and for us to see, is this student actually invested in becoming a product designer? Because it does take a lot of hours. Uh, in our experience, which I'm sure we'll go into later in the podcast, it does take about 12 months to go from zero to your, you know, your first offer. Uh, after the three weeks, we go ahead and assess if it's a fit. You see if it's a fit. And then you go into an intense eight-month program. So that eight-month program, uh, the first five months are all instruction, meaning the first couple of weeks you're learning visual design and getting familiar with Figma. The next couple of weeks, you're actually creating your first case study. Uh, so to get a product design job, you need a portfolio, and the portfolio ideally has anywhere from two to three, uh, some people even have eight to ten, case studies, which is essentially your design process covering interaction design, visual design, product thinking, the whole, the whole range. Um, after the five months, you're paired with an industry designer to be your mentor, to kind of help you with crafting your portfolio, helping you navigate your interviews, helping you negotiate your offers, helping you find companies that actually align with what you're interested in and the type of designer you are. There are companies that are extremely visual, like Robinhood or Instagram, and there's companies that are very much into product thinking and systems thinking, which might be your enterprise companies like Salesforce and Intuit. You know, they, generally designers have similar skills, but they lean one way or the other, and some might even lean, way, like, lean both ways if that's possible. Um, so to kind of recap, you go into an eight-month program, five months being the course, uh, three months being paired with the mentor. And we found this model to be really successful when we did it at Cornell University. 
uh, which uh, we might get into later in the podcast, where the first six months you're taking our course and the next uh, four to six months you're paired with an instructor to help you uh, navigate you to your first job. So I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory and where the idea idea came from. Uh, Yeah, if you can just kind of give me an idea of uh, where, when did you get this idea? And uh, how did you get started? I mean, it's a whole, it's a school. So how do you just start that? <laughs> yeah. So um, our entire team, were actually all really great friends from college. Uh, and we all went to Cornell University, which uh, is a good school for certain things. Definitely not for product design. There exists nothing for product design. Uh, and so we were all self-taught. And we knew that there are a lot of students at Cornell who were paying so much for this education, but wanted to become product designers. And there's a huge... Uh, I guess, misalignment there. So we actually started a course. It's a two-credit course. Um, Todd was all student-taught, all student-led, student-graded. Uh, everything was all, all from us and being the students. Uh, two credits pass-fail, and we had around 40 or 50 students take this class every semester. So over three years, that's over hundreds of students. Um, within that, uh, because the course was so intense, 50 people would start, and there'd probably be 10 or 12 left at the end. And if you ask most students who took the course, they probably prioritized this course over their actual schoolwork because they were so interested in the course. Uh, it was actually giving them what the market demanded of a product designer. Um, and collectively, we helped probably over 50 or 60 students get their first jobs. To give you an example, Facebook uh, this past summer probably had 40 or 50 product design interns. 13 came from Cornell and took this class. Um, so we kind of had a lot of experience in this, not only us all being self-taught, but also teaching others. Uh, As we would advertise this class, students from other universities would ask, hey, can we take this class? And we just didn't have the bandwidth to put it online or make it, you know, we were were also full-time students. So this was also a lot of work. Um, I thought about how do we kind of open source some education because a lot of the design resources online, and if you ask any beginner, they would agree. Uh, it's, it's great. It's informational, but it's really geared towards people who are already in the industry, knowing how to have a good one-on-one with a senior designer or knowing how to become a principal designer. You know, that's good. That's good content. But if I I don't even have a portfolio, like what am I supposed to do with this content? Um, so it's, it's not the information that beginners are looking for. Um, and at the time I had, uh, a mentor, Jared Rondu, a great designer, still, still a mentor and a good friend. Um, and he kind of helped me craft uh, a podcast called Students Who Design, uh, which was us interviewing a bunch of unconventional designers who were all maybe one year out of school, maybe just did their first internship, but didn't go to design schools. They were dropouts. They were student athletes. They had transferred three or four times. They were underrepresented minorities. Um, And each episode got around 800 to 1,000 listens. And now that we're all graduated, we kind of realized, okay, there's all this demand via the podcast outside of Cornell, and we know how to do this from our experience at Cornell, um, why don't we go ahead and make this an online product design school? Um, and that's that's how it got started. It's a great story. Uh, it's one of the better ones that I've heard on this podcast. So thanks for sharing. I, I want to dive into a huge decision that you made, uh, it sounds like from the beginning, which is deciding to go with an ISA uh, yeah. for, for your school. So obviously ISAs are all the rage right now. Um, sure. But from what I've heard, 
obviously it's easier to offer an ISA, but it's hard. The hard part is actually delivering the good education that gets the ISAs to pay you back. Um, so it's a little higher risk for the school. Uh, why did you decide to go with the ISA and take on that risk in the beginning before it was a, you know, it was a big venture? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the main process or thought process there is that we don't want to get paid until our students get paid. And I think that was the principle that we wanted to go with, especially because it all started as free resources. Um, and a lot of our students, they're either in school, meaning they already have loans, they've graduated, you know, they're three or four years out, still paying loans, doing a job that they don't really like, um, or they're, you know, not making the salary to afford a $10,000 General Assembly product design bootcamp. Um, and that's the most common thing we hear is like, I, yeah, I look at these boot camps, but they're so expensive. Or some of these boot camps have ISAs or tuition reimbursement guarantees, but they're a little shady because like, if I don't do X, Y, or Z, then I don't get my tuition back. And we wanted to be as transparent as possible where, you know, in order for us to prove this out, it's not necessarily you giving us, you know, $10,000 and then we're like, maybe going to help you get a job. Maybe not. You know, we want to be aligned with the students incentives and then it only feels right to get paid whenever they get paid. And the best example I give students whenever explaining this concept is like, you know, if you go to Starbucks and you give them $100 and you may or may not get coffee, would you be comfortable giving them $100 um, versus, you know, you get the coffee and then you pay them because you know you're, you have what you want. Um, and that feels good for our team and continuing, continuing to do this. And I think it feels good for the students that we're really invested in their success compared to, you know, just wanting a quick buck out of each person. It kind of seems like, based on what you told me on the podcast and before the podcast, that this is something that is that it's very exciting and is working. And based on what you've been saying, I'm curious. Like, would you say that this is like? Did, would you say that you have popped yet, or do people know about about this model or the students who design the school, or are you still kind of under the radar? Um, if you're able to kind of take yourself out of the equation and look at it objectively. Um, do, do you, are you well known or are you still trying to get more well known? I would say that the podcasts and our blog posts um, and the resources that we put out over the last two and a half years are fairly well known among the student design community. Um, it's usually one or two resources that are very much geared towards students and that's students who design co-folios um, and rookie.design. There's not much else out there that's free and very, very helpful. As for us being a product design school, that's brand new. So, you know, if you ask someone, you know, what boot camps have you considered? It's probably not student design yet. Um, and that's mainly because we just started the, the longer program. Um, and I do see us getting there at, at some point. But if you ask anyone who's just fresh out of school or just did their first internship and you ask them, like, you know, what's a school that you thought was unexpected that you found a lot of interns from? And, and it's probably Cornell University because they've all taken this course. There's a strong design community. And our goal is to basically take what we had at school and put it at scale. Um, and I think we'll be able to do that. That's awesome. As you think about growing your student base and just growing your footprint around the country and around the world. Uh, um, what are some tactics that you are using or plan on using to, to get the word out and to distribute uh, the word about, about students who design? I would say continuing the resources that we've provided. I think that's core to our company. That's core to us as individuals. And what we care about is helping people who are underprivileged, underrepresented, and just may not have um, you know, the resources to go to a Rhode Island School of Design or to transfer or do an MFA 
or to do a general assembly, right? Because that's where the future of all designers are going to come from. If you look at companies like Figma or Sketch, the countries that they're investing in is not the United States, it's Africa, it's India, it's places that um, the next generation of designers will come from. So I think one way that we're planning to do this is to actually offer this three week free course consistently over the year. Uh, right now we have enough applications where we're probably gonna run the course um, eight to 10 times throughout 2020. Um, and I think that's one way for us to continue giving back and then a way for the students to see like, is this something I wanna do or is this you know, something that they're just going to ask for my future income and I don't really know what to expect. Um, I think there should be a lot of growth, a lot of expectation alignments, but also uh, continuation for uh, continuing to give resources back to the community because, you know, when we started, that's what helped us, right? We didn't do a fancy boot camp or go to Rhode Island School of Design. Uh, we used the free resources that resources that were out there, the designers in the industry who were willing to give their time back, and it's only right that we do that as well. Um, uh, in, in addition to the the, the larger program. So right now I'm doing work with Prenda, which is a uh, kind of a K through eight micro school system, and and we're educating the the, the young the younglings of of the world. And uh, I know that once these kids go to high school, potentially go to go to college, and hit the job market, things are changing out there in the job market. People don't necessarily care if you have a degree anymore; they care that you have the skills and. And the, and the portfolio, et cetera. Um, and I think some colleges aren't kind of understanding this. And obviously you are. I'm kind of curious, what do you think about what's going on with the macro economy of education? And uh, is there going to be a massive disruption of the higher ed model with kind of with your type of model? Or do you think these higher ed uh, schools are going to figure it out and match the changing job market? I think, I don't think they'll disappear. Um, and I'm stealing from James's answer a little bit, just because they've been around for hundreds of years. Um, and this ISA bootcamp model has not been around for nearly as long. I think it depends on the profession. Um, and I'm very much on the boat where, you know, you should go to school for the experience and to learn. Um, and I think some, the ISA model is more like, you know, your goal here is to get a job. And those are two different things. So I think in terms of anything that requires a lot of craft and is almost like a trade, like software engineering, data science, growth marketing, product design, the, there will be a disruption for programs that you know, cost $250,000 in student loans when you can go to General Assembly for $10,000, right? And get the same job at the end. For things like law, medicine, political science, you know, I don't, I'm not really sure how an ISA would work there. Um, because a lot of those people who study those things don't necessarily end up in those fields. Like you have a lot of people who study English who become investment bankers and a lot of um, people who study finance who become lawyers. And like, it's just a lot of different things happening there versus if you study computer science, you're probably going to end up in technology. Um, so I think there'll be a disruption in terms of majors that lead to a very clear cut profession. Uh, one joke we had at school was that all the good majors at Cornell are just sound like a job. They're hotel administration, architecture, applied economics, and engineering, right? Those are all jobs. So I can see those being disrupted easily by the models that exist today. Um, the part that there might be a little bit of misalignment that I think the industry is still trying to figure out is, you know, I already studied computer science. I wasn't very good at it. And, you know, I'm, I'm in all this debt and now I need to get a job. So I'm not going to go back to school and I can't really afford your boot camp. So like, what's that for me? 
Um, and the model that we like to give to students is like, if you take someone and you put them on a scale of zero to 10, zero being I know nothing, 10 being I can get a job right now, um, where is the, that product or that school for people who are in that five to six range or six to seven to range and they need help to get to 10, right? That's not going back to school to get your master's and that's not doing maybe a $20,000 bootcamp, right? I think that's where the ISA model really fits in because, you know, our goal is like, you already went from zero to seven, you did the hard work. Now it's more like all those tips that are more, that are easier to get from a mentor or instructor compared to trying to do it on your own because that hasn't been working. Do you know why ISAs have only reached this popular phase in the last couple of years? I know there are countries, you know, specifically Germany and others that ISAs has been in their fabric for, you know, for quite a while. Why is the United States just starting to catch up if you have an idea? To be honest, I, I don't. Um, my thought would be that there's no other country, I think, that has such an ingrained, I think, maybe like a societal perception or a societal pressure to go to college and go to a university. Like, I think it's what Harvard's like hundreds of years old whenever the U.S. first started, Harvard and Yale, right? So if they kind of set the precedent of like, this is what prestige is, um, this is the jobs we have, all of our presidents come from here, you know, and those kinds of things, then growing up, that's what you hear. And that's what the pressure for these current people are. Uh, students in high school for example like my sister right now like they're all so stressed to get into a good college because that's what like society demands of you whereas for example when I was living in uh, Copenhagen studying abroad uh, there wasn't a lot of talk about college it was more like what do you like to do okay like let's figure out how to go do that um, and if that meant to go to college then you go to college but if it didn't then that's okay and no one you know everyone's okay with that like getting I think the funny thing is one professor in uh, our school was like you know if you get a C plus that's good and all the American students are like, what? Like, because we're not trained that way, right? But if you told someone, I know 75% of history, that's good. But a C plus is the same thing. But, you know, in America, like it's a C plus is bad. Uh, and I think that's the funny thing is just how the perception of grades and prestige in universities is across the, the world and how the U.S. Kinds of, kind of has had this uh, perception for so many years that's kind of ingrained in our society. That, that's an interesting answer, and I totally agree in that. It's just how – it's almost like the answer of it's how we've, we've always done it, like Harvard. Exactly. It's like their tradition. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. I, I'm kind of intrigued in the different use cases for ISAs, even outside of education. In the last, I don't know, two months, I've seen multiple companies use ISAs for different use cases. For example, one is a talent agency, and their, mm -hmm. their value prop is we will – find you a job somewhere else that's higher paying and we'll take 10% of your salary. Another one is like mentorship. Like we'll, we'll you oh, get yeah. a great mentor. We'll get, you know, an ISA percent of your, of your, of your salary, or I don't know exactly how it works, but do you know uh, of, of other use cases for ISAs or more on a higher level? What does the ISA unlock for opportunity and for people um, on more like just a, a higher level, um, what does it mean for the future, the fact that ISAs are now coming into the fold? And, and what does it mean for our kids and whatnot? I think it opens up a lot of uh, opportunity. I think that's the greatest impact is now I, I don't need a lot of cash. I don't need parents who are wealthy. 
I don't need to take out a bunch of loans. Um, I don't need to do this up, like have this thing up front to get what I want, right? You're kind of removing that from the equation. And it's only when I have success, then, you know, I can, I, I, I would pay. And that makes sense because now I have that success. Um, different models that I think I've seen that are really interesting. One is Sharpest Minds. Uh, and uh, what they do is they give you a data science mentor and Sharpest Minds will say 3% for doing all the general interview help and resume help and the mentor can choose their percentage. And so like as a mentor, like what percent do you pick, uh, you know, for how many students you have? And they've actually said that some mentors do it full time now because they make enough money off of it, right? So not only is it opening up opportunity for the mentees, but all these people who want to get into education, but don't want to, you know, go to a high school and make $30,000 a year now can do that by being a data science mentor, living anywhere in the world, mentoring people to their first job and making a good salary off of it. Um, the other side, I think it, it kind of opens up a lot of these industries where access is very limited, such as music. You know, there's a really cool company, uh, I'm trying to blanking on the name, wow, uh, United Masters. Uh, so they're a Andreessen Horowitz funded company. Um, and what they do is they basically remove the record label and use software as a record label. Um, and I thought it was interesting. And I was brainstorming with my friend who works there. Like, what if you provided the entire studio service to anyone um, or to like people you filter out where you think they might be promising artists and they can use the space and they can make music and you would take a percentage of their future uh, sales. Right. So if they're not making money, then you don't make money. But it opens up the door to all these people who want to get into music, who might be in the inner cities, who might be in the projects, who might be, you know, just they want to get into music, but they don't really, you know, recording studio costs hundreds of dollars an hour, but like they don't have that. And so I think the ISA model kind of opens up the door to not only the people who want to get into certain fields, but also the people who are providing the education or resources to help them get into those fields. Got it. That's I actually just uh, went to the United uh, United Masters website, and this looks incredible. I, I in another world, I was a full time musician uh, or another life, and I, I did it for about seven years. I wasn't that good, which is why I switched yep. into tech. I think I'm a little better at tech, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this is super interesting. Well, you're definitely better than me because I never don't know how to play any instrument. <laughs> See, the good thing is that something I'll always have is I'm pretty good at guitar. Like I, I will, I, I, if someone I was at a party or whatever, like go oh, like play some riffs. Like I could, I can shred, and I'm pretty great. It's just I am not a good singer, and I tried to be. I tried to be a singer songwriter, so I needed to sing. And my voice, people, let me put it like this: people always told me, Matt, you're so good at guitar. <laughs> just like, just like oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i got that a lot <laughs> going going back to your question like yeah let's say you were good at guitar and you want to be in a band and make music like what if that company would find you a singer and uh someone who's really good at piano and someone who could produce and boom you have your team right like i feel like there's all these unexplored areas around even like team building where um i don't know if it's to the extent of like hey i need a technical co-founder and it's like all right we'll source it we'll do the whole thing but we want i don't know x percent in your company or x percent in your future revenue something like that. And I, I'm not sure if that's even a good model of economics, even if, if the economics work out, if at all, but like, that's not something we can explore because of ISA. Is that kind of, I want to bounce something off of that. Cause also ISA is, unless there's something with the, uh, with the, um, I don't know what organization I'm thinking of, but if there's, oh, with the SEC, if there's something that the SEC doesn't allow this, but it, but it makes me think, potentially anyone can become an investor. If I find a, a high school or a college kid or exactly. anyone that I think, you know, you got a cool idea, 
here's even just a thousand bucks, you know, you know even, just like here's something that to buy that whatever, and I'll get an ISA cap at three thousand or whatever. It almost allows any it, it allow anyone to invest and creates a new asset class, which is kind of interesting as well. Yep. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit to something that is touchy for some people, but it's something that I am always pretty intrigued in. And it's the subject of age and it's age and uh, age and geography. So when I talk to people on the podcast, a lot of them are uh, older, they have a lot of battle scars and now they're able to, to operate because they, they, they've had those battle scars, but you are a little younger of a founder and you're, I, I'm, I'm guessing you're in your twenties, right? Yeah. Yep. And I am also in my twenties and I am going through battle scars every day and, and, and learning and failing and whatnot. I'm kind of curious, how do you, as a, on the younger side of founders, make sure that you are um, surrounding yourself with people that might be more experienced to uh, help you avoid making mistakes that people that haven't done it before generally make, um, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I would say that uh, I'm sure you've heard this. Like, you kind of have your personal board of directors, um, and so like mentors, friends, um, all my managers from all my internships, um, people from school who have graduated and been out for a long time. Anytime I'm doing something where I would want feedback and I trust feedback, those people have either started companies or have been early stage before. Um, so that certainly helps. So I think I mentioned Jared around here before, but he's someone that I always probably take too much from in terms of time and energy. Uh, but he's someone who's had so many experiences, um, especially, um, especially because he is a product design leader. So that also gives me a little bit more context. Um, around getting feedback on what we're doing and our, our growth, uh, I guess our growth funnel and things like that. But I think that kind of helps me understand if I'm doing the right thing. Um, one kind of cautionary thing against that though is that uh, you're relying on these people, I think, for their feedback, but not necessarily to make the plan for you because they don't have the context that you do. Um, one, one of my close longtime mentors and friends uh, is the founder of Function of Beauty, which is a um, a custom shampoo and conditioner company and he doesn't know anything about product design or ISAs or anything like that but he definitely knows like how do you set up a structure of a company or how do you you know how do you hire um, and so trying to pick and choose like what from your personal board of directors or your mentors like what are they actually suited to help you with and something that they would actually be able to give you adequate feedback on um, versus you know dumping your all of your startups problems on them and being like what do I do or where do I find users right and so like that that's not very productive um and so i think those people throughout my life not only with students who design but also uh going through going going through anything in my life whether it was choosing what college to go to uh choosing what internship to do uh going through my experience with cancer like that's what helped me um and so i think it, it's not necessarily for your startup but it's also for your life if you you know if you don't have friends family mentors acquaintances um, people who are further along who care about you. I think it's very hard to do anything that you would want to do, whether that's a startup or not. I want to ask one more question within that realm, a little more tactical, um, actually for, for, for my own sake, because I'm curious. For You mentioned personal board of directors. Do you, I, I've gotten the advice that you shouldn't have like standing meetings with people. It should be more organic. And when you have a need, you reach out, or when you have a question, you reach out. 
What's your philosophy on, on that? Do you have standing meetings with a personal board or is it more on demand when you feel like you, you need to talk? Oh, to no, people? it's definitely, definitely not recurring or standing. Um, I, yeah, I, I think, I think those relationships, I think they're, they're good for the short term in terms of getting what you need and then it's kind of over, but they're not, you know, they won't last several years. Uh, they won't last you moving or their move, them moving or the test of time. And at the end of the day, like your personal board of directors is like the word board of directors is kind of misleading because in a company, they're supposed to help you like navigate crucial times. You meet once a quarter. Um, and you know, they're probably their firm invested in you versus this is like someone who cares about you. And I think it's a little different. Like cares about your personal success, cares about your professional success, cares about your mental health, you know, knows your girlfriend's name, for example, things like that. And I think that's the main difference there. And I think maybe the board board of directors kinds of misleads people into like, oh, I need to talk to my mentor once every two weeks. Um, I don't think that's the case. You know, they're also busy. Uh, one of my mentors was like, you know, you're the first person to ask me like how I'm doing. <laughs> and so like, I think, uh, you know, they're also people too, um, which I think a board of directors is a little different because they gave you capital. You're supposed to give them something in return versus here. It's like, you know, you're, it's just like having an, older brother or sister or an older cousin. I think that's the difference. Definitely, definitely. Well, I have one final question for you. You're starting off this this new school after you've had a, a good amount of success putting out some content uh, regarding learning how to design, how to get a job in that realm, etc. What is something that the forward-thinking founders community can help you with um, if you have an ask for anyone listening or you need some help with something, whether it's recruiting someone for your team, getting more users, spreading the word, how can our community help you? Yeah, thanks, thanks for asking. Um, the first one would be if you know anyone interested in product design or if you yourself want to become a product designer, uh, head over to studentsu.design uh, and sign up for our three three-week course. I think that would be, be awesome. Uh, the second part is if your startup needs design help. Uh, something that our students who have graduated from our previous cohort, you know, they're looking for more work in their portfolios. They're looking for uh, to put more experiences on their resume. Um, and so we're already starting to work with several startups from uh, the Y Combinator Network and other companies where they would actually give us projects and then our students will complete them. And if the work is good, then they would pay them as like as a freelance product designer. So if that's something that you're interested in, uh, feel free to contact me and uh, we can get that started. All right. Uh, I actually have one last question that I yeah. should have asked earlier that I'm going to ask now. Uh, what is the, the big overarching vision of students who design? If you look out in a decade or so, um, what do you think this school could become? Yeah, I think the core thesis that kind of grounds my answer in this is that with the rise of all these no-code tools and software writing software and um, you know, a lot of software engineering being outsourced, whether it's through scale AI, trying to outsource all of the things that go into anything related to AI or outsourcing development because it's cheaper in other countries. Design is one of those things that, you know, software can't create design the way that product designers do. Um, and it's very hard to just outsource product design, um, especially with the rise of things like Figma, which is free, or Webflow, which is entirely no code. There will just be a large, uh, just a huge increase in the total addressable market of would-be designers. Um, and therefore, not all of them will, one, want to go into expensive boot camps or two, go to Rhode Island School of Design. 
I don't think design schools will exist in 50 or 100 years unless it's something you're very specific, like you're doing very specifically, like you're trying to become a typographer or if you want to become a professor or if you want to get your poster in the MoMA, right? But if you want to get into product design, um, this school will be the best school for you compared to traditional design programs. Got it. That's an awesome future. And so far, based on what you've shared, I think it can come true if you, if you keep at it. And hopefully some, some people listening will check out the course, will, will get involved and maybe join even the school afterwards. So thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Yeah. I learned a lot. And I think what you're working on is, is pretty unique in that I haven't seen a school in this specific vertical yet. So um, I wish you the best and best of luck. Appreciate it. Thanks, Matt.